This morning we are returning to James. And the overarching theme of James is the reality that true faith works. More than that, it's the idea that walking according to true faith, living out those good works, ultimately will lead to the blessing of God. One of the things that we have to be careful to note in considering the reality, that reality, is that the good works that we are to walk in are defined not by the world, but rather they're defined by God. As we talked a little bit about last week in looking at Isaiah chapter 6, God himself is the standard of all of what is good and right and true. He is the standard of what is holy. He is the standard of what makes for righteousness. We serve, we love, all in accord with his holiness. We must be careful to guard ourselves against following the wisdom of the world. We have to be careful to guard ourselves against the influences of the world. The world will try to tell you that you ought to live as a, quote, religious person, and they'll tell you what that means. They'll define it in their eyes. Pure and undefiled religion in the world's eyes is to accept everyone under any circumstance, regardless of the cause. It's a love without, quote, judgment, without discernment, most importantly, without considering the standard of the word of God. There was a study done recently among churches in Oxford, England, with reference to what they called safe churches. These churches were rated according to the standard of those who identified under the LGBTQ plus banner and particularly defining themselves as gay and transgender Christians. The rating of their standard is based on how, quote, safe people feel when they are a part of a church. And the feeling of safety usually revolves around whether or not they hear anything about sin in particular anything that would be contrary to their own view of themselves. It's funny how the idea of inclusivity used to mean that you would include something, someone into what you are already doing, right? You were welcoming someone to join in to what you were already doing as opposed to leaving them out. What inclusive has now come to mean is not that people are simply welcome to join in to what is already going on, but rather that what is being done must be altered, changed, or diminished in order to suit the one who is on the outside. And that to the degree that they come in and they feel totally comfortable with all that is done. You're to cater to their every whim, and that means changing the underlying rules of the game to which they're being included. That's really what's at stake today. It's not simply a question of whether those who identify under the banner of LGBTQ plus are welcome to be included in church. They certainly are. But it's the desire of those activists, and the world is wholeheartedly agreeing to this, for the church to completely change the underlying rules of the game. They want the church to abandon any standard of holiness any standard of morality, particularly the standard of holiness and morality that has defined the church for the past 2,000 years based on the standard of the word of God, they want for those underlying rules to be changed and altered so that they can feel comfortable. Well, we haven't seen or heard such a study here in the U.S., but that doesn't mean that the idea isn't already here. People are already evaluating churches based on whether or not it fits their own particular identity and ideology 
as opposed to how faithful it is to the truth of who God is. I'd like to go on record as saying that I hope that our church is never a safe place for sin. And by that, I mean any sin. I hope that people who are struggling with any sin, anything that contradicts the word and will of God, I hope they feel uncomfortable as they come here. I hope they feel convicted by the truth of the word of God. Yes, I hope and pray that we're as welcoming as we ought to be. I pray that we are ready and willing to accept those who are rich or poor, to accept no matter what a person's socioeconomic status is, no matter what their choices are regarding sexuality, to welcome them into the fellowship. But I hope and pray that when they come here, they hear something not that tickles their ears or makes them feel comfortable, but what they hear is the standard of God's word. They hear his truth. And they see that lived out in our lives. And they even see us being convicted by it and feeling uncomfortable ourselves, squirming in the seats because God's word is true and we are not always true. And because that's the most important thing for us as his people, we need to know his standard. And we need to seek to live by his standard. Well, since it's been a little bit since we've been in James, we've, we skipped the week last week. I'll just give you a brief review of what has come before as we're entering into chapter four this week. In chapter 1, James began with a brief greeting. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and at the time of the writing of this letter, he was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. Moving through chapter 1, after the introduction, James kind of introduces some of the other major themes that he's going to be covering throughout the letter. He calls believers to have a persistent faith, a faith that endures, and a faith that endures no matter what the circumstances are. The church was clearly going through some great difficulties, some trials, some distresses, and this is one of the first things that James introduces in his letter in chapter 1. He says we need to develop a persistent kind of faith, a faith that endures, and we develop this kind of faith as we learn to think differently about our trials. Trials are really a blessing as the Lord uses them to mature our faith. We need to think this way about our trials so that we don't grow discouraged. Moreover, we develop a maturing, persistent faith through prayer. We are to pray in faith in order to respond well to those trials. We develop a maturing faith as we meditate on the promises of God. God is at work in the lives of all of his people to bring about their maturity, to bless their faithfulness, to see that they receive only good things from his hands. And we develop a maturing faith as we exercise patience. Patience in the midst of those trials and difficulty. Patience with those around us. Denying our worldly responses. Instead, seeking to respond in accord with the word of God. Being doers of the word and not hearers only, he says. Not only should we have a persistent faith, we should also aim to have a pure faith. That's the end of chapter 1. James talks about what a pure faith looks like what true religion looks like. And he says it's not from the perspective of the world, it's from the perspective of who? It's from the perspective of God. He says pure religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. A pure faith in the sight of the Father is self-controlled, it's compassionate towards others, particularly those who are most vulnerable, and it is primarily concerned with what pleases God the most. It is unstained by the world. Moving on to chapter 2. But most considered to be the start of the body of the letter, James addresses more specifically how this faith should be lived out in the world. 
Our faith is a faith that should show no partiality at the beginning of chapter 2. We serve the Lord of glory. He's in a category unto himself. There's no one higher. All are equally less than his glory. He doesn't show partiality, so neither should we. We are to honor one another in ways that are appropriate, and yet it's not not appropriate to treat some in the body of Christ better than others. The body of Christ was, in fact, designed such that we are to seek to be a blessing to one another. Our faith is a faith that ought to work. This has always been true of our faith. Toward the end of chapter 2, Paul, uh, Paul, James gives us uh, a reminder of this by looking at even the life of Abraham and Rahab. Our faith is a faith that works. It's not that we work in order to become a part of the faith. We don't work in order to earn our salvation, but those who are saved by the grace of God will walk in good works. It will be displayed. Their faith should be evident in the way they live and the things that they do. And that's his point. Our faith is justified by our works. Our faith is clearly explained by our works. Our faith is made evident by our works. Our faith is a faith that ought to be self-controlled. We moved into chapter 3, and we saw that self-control is first evidenced by a tamed tongue. A tamed tongue is an evidence of a mature faith. For one who has a tamed tongue has control over their their entire body, and thus they use their tongue to bless and not to curse. And in the second part of chapter 3, and that's where we were the last time, we saw this this self-control that we ought to have as a part of our faith is a product of wisdom that comes from above. Those who have this wisdom from above show it by their good works. Those who have wisdom from the earth show it by their wicked works. The wisdom that is from above ultimately leads to peace. It is displayed in a peaceful heart. It responds in peace to difficulties in life, and it seeks to sow peace among others. And that brings us to our text for this morning. In chapter 4 of the letter of James. Again, James is seeking to address some practical issues that the church is dealing with, issues regarding living out their faith in a way that pleases God, that demonstrates their faith in a way that leads to the blessing of God. Again, our faith is self-controlled. Self-control is a product of wisdom that comes from above. Not only are we to tame our tongues, but we'll see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, that we're also to tame our passions. As we move through this section, we'll see three different points. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see the reality of our untamed passions. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, we see the reason for our untamed passions. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, we see the result of our untamed passions. The reality of our untamed passions, the reason for our untamed passions, and the result of our untamed passions. I'll read James chapter 4 for context, and then we'll pray and look at the section in more detail. James chapter 4. Well, actually, I'll start at verse 13 of chapter 3 and then read through chapter 4. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? James chapter 3, verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast 
and be false to the truth. This wisdom, or this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Your word is truth. And we believe as Jesus prayed that you do sanctify your people by your truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James's focus again in this chapter as we get started in chapter four is on the taming of our passions we'll look at that first point in this section which I've named the reality of our untamed passions look at verses one through three again with me what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have Because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
In the previous section, James indicated the contrast between worldly wisdom and wisdom that is from above. A good indication of the difference is the effect of the wisdom. The effect of the wisdom that is from the world, James says, is disorder in every evil practice. Whereas the effect of the wisdom from above is peace. To illustrate this truth, moving into chapter 4, James, as a good pastor, addresses the sin of his congregation head on. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says again in verse 2, you fight and you quarrel. Clearly, James is concerned that the believers to whom he's writing are walking in accord with the world's wisdom and not God's wisdom. The wisdom of the Lord, the wisdom from above leads to peace. What he sees among them is not peace, it's disorder and every evil practice. It's fights and quarrels. The word quarrel suggests some kind of verbal altercation. The term fight may involve some kind of physical violence, but I think it's more likely that he's using it synonymously to emphasize his point. There are quarrels and full-blown fights, not just your average disagreement that happens from time to time, but these are more significant. These involve perhaps a more large-scale disagreement, more significant consequences, broken relationships. Regardless of what actually happens, there's certainly a lack of peace. The question that he asks is a rhetorical one, and he, in fact, answers the question himself. The question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The answer, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You all are fighting among yourselves. There's this order among you. There's a clear lack of peace among you. Where is this coming from? Well, I'll tell you, it's coming from your passions. You have these passions within you, and they're simply out of control. They're warring within you. Now, what are these passions, and how are they at war within us? The word itself is just a generic term for pleasure. It is, in our text, translated as passions, but can also be translated as desires or lusts. We actually get our English word hedonism from this word in the original language. We have pleasures, we have passions, we have desires that we want fulfilled, and when those go unfulfilled, particularly when we expect for someone else to fulfill it, there is a conflict that arises. Now, James has addressed our desires previously in chapter 1. There he wanted to make clear that temptation doesn't come from God. When we're experiencing difficulty in life, no matter the source of the difficulty, God doesn't tempt us to evil. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now, he uses a different word there, but the idea is the same. We have desires within us, urges, desires, passions, and we're lured and enticed by these desires. If you remember, I said at the time that the idea of being lured is akin to a fishing line. And a tasty piece of bait at the end of the fishing line being thrown into the water, that's alluring to fish. It lures them in, and once the hook is snagged in their jaw, they are drawn away. Or they are enticed by their desires, and the image of enticement is that of a trap set for a game animal. A piece of cheese for a mouse is laid out to entice them. Perhaps berries or other such treats are laid out on a trap for small game to entice them. Once they're enticed to come toward the trap, the trap is set and they're captured. James says that this is what our desires within do to us. 
I think that we completely underestimate the power of sin, the effect of sin. Sinful desires within are captivating, alluring, enticing. They will ensnare us. And he says, desire, once it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Back in our text of chapter 4, James says that these passions are at war within us. There is a battle constantly raging on within us, a battle of our passions. Our passions desire fulfillment. We may have multiple passions during asking for fulfillment at the same time. Sometimes we're both hungry and sleepy. In context, these passions, these desires are clearly those things that are contrary to the will of God, contrary to his wisdom because of what they lead to in the community. So there's danger inherent. Peter warns of this battle of opposing desires in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. He says the passions of the flesh here can be understood in two different ways. I think we can understand it generally to mean that there are certain kinds of passions that are fleshly, and we should be careful not to indulge in those kinds of passions. But I think it's more important to recognize that we have particular vices that we struggle with personally. And against these particular vices that we struggle with, we must be careful because in Peter's words, those passions wage war against the soul. The writer of Hebrews said this way, lay aside, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. There are some sins that entangle us individually us as individual members of the body of Christ. There are certain sins that entangle us. And the writer of Hebrews says, you need to be careful. You need to lay those things aside because you will be ensnared by them. Likewise, Paul says in Galatians chapter five, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And for these are opposed to each other. When he talks about the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. Now you may ask the question, and it would be a good question, how is it that we have these passions if God has saved us from our sin? If we have the Holy Spirit at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, how are we still struggling with sin? I think that's a good question. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I've mentioned this passage before, but I think it's good for us to just have a, a quick review. Because this is important for us in order to be able to move forward. Paul is trying to answer the question of sin, the issue of sin. He's addressing those who may have misunderstood the doctrine of God's grace. And they understand and they see that God's grace, God's favor, is manifested where there is sin. We see God's grace and God's favor where there are wicked people, sinful people who have broken the law of God and God's grace and his favor is greater than their sin. And so they ask the question, should we continue in sin then? Should we just keep on sinning so that the grace of God can continue to be more apparent? And Paul says that is an absolutely foolish idea. And he leads into chapter six on that point to try to underscore the fact that if we have been freed from sin, 
there's absolutely no reason to continue in sin. That the whole reason why Christ died is to free us from sin. And so there's no reason for us to continue or to remain in sin. Look at chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And then he talks a little bit about what it means that we have died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And the point that he makes is that those who have put their faith in Christ have been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so spiritually speaking, the life that we lived before that was enslaved to sin, unable not to sin, unable not to give in to sin. The life that we lived before is dead. It died on the cross with Christ. And the life that we have now, again, we talk about throughout the course of James, the significance of the fact that we've been brought forth by the word of truth. We've been born again. The life that we have now, this new life, is a life that is alive to God. It's a completely new life. He says we ought to walk in the new life, newness of life because we've been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, verse 11, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says this is really the crux of the issue. It's not a matter of us just continuing to sin so that God's grace may be manifested among us. That just doesn't make any sense because you're dead to sin. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. It doesn't control you any longer. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about those who walk according to the course of the world who walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He says that no longer describes you if you are a believer because you've been raised up with Christ and so you have new life. So you ought to walk in the newness of life. And that starts with us considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we are dead to sin, no longer held captive by sin since we were raised up with Christ. However, the body has not been raised and still has passions and desires. Our physical body still has passions and desires. And those passions and desires are often contrary to the will of God. And so he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This is the first step is that you got to actually put your faith in Christ. You got to know Jesus. You got to be trusting in him. And if you know him, if you're trusting in him, then you have been given new life. You are set free from sin. 
You have to believe that you've been set free from sin. You have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And then he says, just don't present your body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. Turn away from the sin. Flee from that sin, whatever it is. Whatever those passions are, don't present your body to serve those passions. He says, we've been set free from sin and we are now alive to God. We have the ability to say no to sin. And you might say, well, it's easy for you to say, but I'm still struggling. Well, I mean, the reality is that we'll all struggle with sin at some point. Again, in our text in James, he indicated to believers that there is a war going on inside of them. There are passions at war within them. That's just the reality of life lived in a fallen world. We have not yet been perfected. We won't be perfected until glory. But our struggle with sin does not affect the truth of Romans 6. We have been set free from sin. We are free to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, and we are commanded to. Our choice to present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness is not a reflection of the ability or power of God. God has not failed. Where there is sin in the life of the believer, it's not because God has failed. Remember, again, God tempts no one to sin. He gives only good and perfect gifts. The good gifts that he has given are the gifts of salvation, freedom from bondage to sin, the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Those things are objective truths that we can hold on to as believers. And so the way we think becomes a part of the process of sanctification. If our attitude towards sin, toward our desires is such that we believe we are enslaved to them, then we'll continue to obey them. Again, Paul said in Romans 6 that we need to first know and believe and consider ourselves to be dead to sin. And he says later in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be renewed by the spirit of our minds. And what did David say? Your word have I hidden in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. Our minds need to be renewed by the mercies of God, by the word of God, by the truth of God. We need to think differently about our life because we do have new life. Perhaps also we need to make our struggle with sin a point of prayer. You say, well, I'm still struggling. Well, you need to read the word of God, but you also need to pray regularly about whatever this sin is, whatever this issue is. Hebrews chapter four, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And I think the principle in that passage in Hebrews chapter four is that we should come to God for any need that we have. But specifically, he's talking about issues of sin and struggling with sin. He talks about the fact that we have a great high priest and a high priest. The role of the high priest was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people's sin. He says we have a great high priest who has not only made a sacrifice, but who's been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so who else are you going to go to if you're struggling with sin? You should go to the one who is able to overcome it. And we go to him in prayer. I think sometimes we may need to cut certain things out of our lives. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
I don't think he's telling people to actually mutilate themselves. The point is that we need to take drastic measures in order to get whatever the offensive thing is away from us. He says, don't tiptoe around it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. Don't just move it to the next room. Flee from it. Get away from it as far as possible. Maybe life becomes more inconvenient for you. If you're struggling with watching certain programs on the television and you have to get rid of the television from your home, get rid of the television from your home. If it's the Internet, cut off the Internet. If it's smoking or drinking, cut it off. Make Take whatever drastic steps you need to in order to distance yourself from that. And beyond all these things, whether we're struggling or not, kicking the habit of sin, we should let someone else know about it. I've said this frequently, but our life of faith is a life lived in community. There's a process of restoration that needs to happen when there's sin. And that process, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, should happen from those at the hand of those who are spiritually minded those who are spiritually mature. I mentioned earlier that I hope that this church is never a safe place for sin. And again, by that, I mean any sin. It doesn't matter if it's sexual sin, covetousness, greed, or anger. I pray that every sin is addressed by the word of God, that every heart is convicted by the word of God, that no one feels comfortable remaining in their sin because they hear the word of God addressing their sin issue. I pray that there's never a lack of accountability among us, that we are always seeking to teach and admonish one another in accord with the word of God to be faithful to Christ. We all have sin, we all have struggles, but we have been set free from sin, and so we should be walking in the newness of life according to what pleases God, not men, and certainly not according to our own passions. Now back to the text, what James is saying is that our untamed passions are stemming from those wicked desires that are warring within us. It is those wicked desires, the desires of the flesh that we are accustomed to obeying that is the source of many conflicts that happen. The conflict described here, again, is described as quarrels, fights, and murder. It should be clear that these things are inherently wrong for the church of Jesus Christ as we, as a church, should be characterized by love. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you wave the rainbow flag. No. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you make everyone feel comfortable when they come into the service and never offend anyone. No. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. James says it this way, that the church should be characterized by those who are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere in those who sow peace. These are indicative of the wisdom that is from above and not the wisdom of the world, which sows disorder in every evil practice. He digs a bit deeper into the nature of these passions and why they lead to conflict. He says that we have unfulfilled desires and these lead to murder. Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. There are some things that we do not have but that we want and because we do not have them we become angry and our anger results in murder. It's not clear whether this is actual physical murder. I don't think that it would make much of a difference in James' mind in one sense because James was taught by Jesus and Jesus said that even anger in the heart is akin to murder. Now, we don't know what it is that they want at this point. Most likely, it's something worldly that they desire, that they're going without. 
James is going to call them an adulterous people in just a moment, citing that their friendship with the world is what is stimulating their sinful actions toward one another. They desire something that they don't have and that they can't get, and so they fight and argue. I think what's more significant is this kind of attitude is indicative of a lack of a thankful heart. They desire something, and instead of giving thanks for what they have, they become angry that they don't have whatever this thing is. He says further, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Not only do they become angry and perhaps murder because they don't have something, whatever that something is, but they also look around at others who have certain things and they covet They may say in their hearts, my life would be so much better if I had what they have. They may say in their hearts, God is not being fair to me because I don't have what they have. Covetousness is likewise related to a lack of thankfulness, but more than simply a lack of thankfulness, covetousness shows a lack of love. Those who love are going to be happy for and rejoice with those who rejoice. When a brother or sister has something beneficial to them, we ought to be grateful for them not wishing what they had there's no joy in that there's no love in that we're told by the world I should pay more attention to my desires to my wants to how I want to be perceived and that you should wholesale affirm and a champion whatever is my concept of myself whatever I desire I should have it's no wonder that this word for passion has come to refer to hedonism the absolute pursuit of pleasure at all costs my pleasure We are told by the world to pursue this, and yet what follows is not more well-balanced and thriving society, but rather, again, disorder in every evil practice, anger, covetousness. And James says that this is infiltrating the church. There is clearly an issue between two classes of people in the church in James's day, those who were rich and those who were poor. It seems that this issue between the classes manifested itself in fights and quarrels in the body. While those who are rich were largely guilty of oppressing the poor, it seems that those who are poor were also guilty before the Lord of coveting the riches of others. I'll say I don't see any indication that there's, this is something that we particularly struggle with here at the Catonsville Baptist Church, but that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle in our hearts with some of these things. There may not be fights and quarrels among us because of differences in our bank accounts, but we may from time to time see a brother or sister with something that we don't have, a nice or nicer car, a nice or nicer outfit, some new gadget, a promotion at work, a husband, a wife, a grandchild, family who visit, a home without sickness. We may see that others have these things and desire them for ourselves instead of being thankful for what we do have or happy for our brother or sister in Christ. My brothers, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. Moreover, whether or not this directly applies to the church, it certainly is applicable in other relationships between friends and among families. One of the most significant sources of conflict between husbands and wives are unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled expectations. Husbands or wives have expectations in their hearts for their spouses. These things often go uncommunicated. Thus, their spouse fails to do it. The one who desired doesn't have, so they become angry in their hearts. Bitterness seeps in over time. 
Or else a husband or wife looks at other husbands and wives and sees something that they have, but they don't have. They become angry and fights and quarrels erupt. The point is the same. Your heart is not right. You're allowing your passions to control you instead of taming them. You're thinking too much about what you don't have instead of being thankful for what the Lord has done for you. And you're not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ who do have. Again, back in our text, James continues, and he says that they have unfulfilled desires, but also unrequested desires. Look at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, James has been progressively unfolding his understanding of prayer. According to tradition, James was said to himself, be a man devoted to prayer. Some referred to him as old camel knees. His knees were said to be as hard as camel's knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. Now, James never references himself as an example of prayer. Instead, he'll, he'll reference one of the great Old Testament figures, Elijah, as an example of prayer later on in this letter. But regardless, you can't walk away from the letter of James without understanding the significance of prayer. Matthew 7 was our scripture reading for this morning. In it, Jesus said, again, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son has asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I said earlier that James was taught by the master teacher. He was taught by Jesus. James had in his mind the significance of the prayer based on what Jesus frequently taught about prayer. The church should be praying because we have a heavenly father who loves to give good things to his children. Prayer moves the hand of God. Peter said it this way. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We pray because we have a heavenly father who cares. Paul said it in many different ways. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The assumption in the New Testament is that believers are praying for what they need and for what they want. Of course, the caveat in James's understanding of prayer and even his mention of prayer here is that the context is encouraging them to take care with their wicked desires, their passions. In other words, he's not saying to them, pray for absolutely whatever you want and God will give it to you. God is not a genie in a bottle sent to do your every wish and every whim. That's not it. However, if it is a legitimate need, then pray and ask your heavenly father. I've said this before, but I think it's interesting that people who don't know God or else think they know God often become angry at God when they randomly pray for something and God doesn't respond. Like you see this frequently portrayed in literature. You see and hear it from people who, again, have never stepped foot in a church or don't read their Bibles. 
I mean, this is, like, this is like the kid who's been ignoring you all day. You've been giving them commands and instructions. You've been trying to encourage them, trying to love on them. They've been ignoring you all day. Don't do a thing that you've asked them to do. Haven't picked up their room, whatever it is, right? They've been completely ignoring you all day, and then they show up at 4 p.m. and ask for a lollipop. And you're like, really? You haven't been listening to me all day. You haven't been talking all day. You haven't been engaging all day. You haven't given me any kind of FaceTime, and yet you're asking me for something now. Why, why should I give you anything? And we know as parents, most of us wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't give that kid the time of day. They wouldn't see a lollipop from then until kingdom come. And we would be right to do that because the relationship has been broken. And that's the thing about prayer. Prayer assumes a relationship. Again, that's the essence of Jesus' words, and that's really the essence of James's understanding of prayer, is that we have a good heavenly Father, a Father who loves us and cares for us, and that's why he answers our prayers. If we know him as Father, if we're related to him as Father, of course he'll answer our prayers. If we don't know him as Father, we're not related to him as Father, he has no obligation to answer our prayers. Nevertheless, whenever we have needs, we ought to ask, and we ought to ask in faith. I wonder what needs you have this morning. What things are on your hearts, perhaps personally, perhaps for your greater family, perhaps needs for others that you've heard of. Sometimes we feel helpless when things happen, difficult things happen. We get frustrated And again, ultimately, to the point of this text, it may lead to us responding in anger towards someone else because we feel helpless about something that we believe we need. No, we will be faced with a number of circumstances that we can physically or practically do nothing about. But one thing that we can always do, one thing that is never a waste of time. I mean, worrying is a waste of time, right? Jesus said that. Which of you can add a single hour of your life by worrying about this thing? But one thing that will never be a waste of time is asking your heavenly father for help. Trusting him to be who he is, a sovereign ruler and gracious heavenly father is never a waste of time. But moving on again, what about those who did ask? There were some who did not ask. What about those who did ask? Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You say, well, I did ask God for that thing I wanted, but he still didn't give it to me. Well, again, God's not a genie in a bottle. That's not what we're talking about. He's a father who gives good things to his children. And if it is true that God did not grant your request, what conclusion should you draw from that? Should you think, oh, well, God just didn't hear? So I need to ask him 2,000 more times? Did you think, well, God just doesn't like me or hates me, that God is impotent, unable to respond? Well, if you believe God's word, that he is a good and gracious heavenly father, and his answer to you was no, then the conclusion you should draw is that your father doesn't believe that that thing is good for you, at least not right now. He is good. And out of his goodness, he will refuse to grant some requests that we ask, particularly if those things are simply to satisfy our passions. That is his goodness and his grace toward us. This is the father who pulls their kid back from a sidewalk. They're about to step out into a busy street. They're not paying attention. You reach down and you grab them before they step out into that busy roadway. 
This is the father gently prying the sharp object from the hand of his toddler. This is the grace of our heavenly father. Sometimes he gives us those things that we need and sometimes those things that we ask for, he chooses not to give us because he knows it won't be good for us. We just need to trust him. This is just a side note, but we do our children and our grandchildren a disfavor when we try to do everything for them, to give everything to them, to grant every wish and desire that they ever had and everything that they request of us. It's not our job as parents to do everything for our children and to give them absolutely everything they ask for. That does not prepare them adequately for life. Sometimes in life we lose We don't always get what we want. We don't always get what we desire, and that is okay. We have to learn to be okay with that, and we have to teach our children that. Children who do not learn that reality grow up to be adults who haven't learned that reality. And they expect people everywhere to cater to their every whim, their every wish. They expect for people to change the rules of the game just for them to feel better about their choices in life. That's not how life works, and it's certainly not how our Heavenly Father works. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. And it's up to us as children of our Heavenly Father to learn to trust him to do that. Well, that's the reality of our untamed passions. Our untamed passions come from sinful desires within. We need to look to our Heavenly Father for strength to say no to those desires. Moreover, our untamed passions cause conflicts without as we desire what others have. And we need to look to our Heavenly Father in faith, trusting that he has and he will give us all of what we need for life. Next week, we'll continue in the passage and look at the next main point, the reason for our untamed passions. Make sure you read ahead and prepare. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for the time that we've had around your word for the reminder of the truth of your word, that you are a good and gracious heavenly father, that you give to us all of what we need. We know that you love us because you've met our greatest need in Christ, a need for salvation, for redemption, for forgiveness of sins. As a father, help us to trust that you'll continue to meet every need that we have according to your riches and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.